This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday, Daphne. How are you today? I'm good. It's Friday. We've almost done a whole week of questions. So congrats to everybody who's stuck it out all week. That's right. And uh, yeah, uh, week two of pulmonary questions. We haven't decided if we're, um, we're moving on to a new topic next week. I'm not sure yet. I think we have more work to do. Okay. You're, you're, <laughs> the, you're the boss here. So uh, you tell me the questions and we'll do them. Okay, um, you are up. I'm not supposed to be asking the first no, question No, I'm up, and uh, you thought we were done with TTN, but we are not um, <laughs> from yesterday. So, which of the following, this is question, sorry, 68. Which of the following statements about the prevention and management of transient tachypnea of the newborn, or TTN, is false? A, administration of antenatal steroids is associated with reduced rates of TTN. B, administration of furosemide to infants with TTN provides no benefit. C, infants with TTN are frequently commenced on antibiotics following delivery. D, the management of TTN is supportive. E, there's a higher risk of TTN following a vaginal delivery at 38 weeks than at 40 weeks. So, first of all, I think it's, even though I was complaining about TTN, I can tell you that it's good that we're hammering this home mm-hmm. because when you do get a question on the board about TTN, like it's it's not the, you don't want to have the feeling of not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's right. Like such, I agree. It's like <laughs> such a downer. I remember when I was doing practice questions, if you had a question on TTN and you weren't sure, you'd be like, really? Like this is how low I've sunk. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It, it tells you, it teaches you a lot about early lung physiology if you really understand, you know, the mechanism. Anyways, right. that being said, I thought this was a hard question. That's why I gave it, it to is. you. <laughs> so let's see which statement about TTN is false. I'm going to go one by one. Mm-hmm. Uh, choice A, administration of antenatal steroids is associated with, reduc- with, with, with reduced rates of TTN. I actually know that to be true. Um, mm-hmm. I have, uh, as a resident and fellow, dug through the literature thinking that any antenatal steroids were going to be uh, helping reducing in BPD. And the data clearly shows that it doesn't help with BPD directly, but mm-hmm. maybe indirectly because it, it improves the initial symptoms of respiratory distress after birth. And so um, having had to dig through that data, I know that to be true. So I'm going to check it off for now. And we're moving on to choice B. Administration of furosemide to infants with TTN provides no benefit. Um, that is true too. Uh, the sad truth about furosemide is that a lot of us use it and there's really like never any evidence that it does anything, <laughs> even though at the bedside, we may see some, some uh, clinical improvements. And um, it's one of these things that I don't know if I can go on a limb here and say that it's never going to be the right answer. <laughs> careful. I'm going to be careful. But furosemide is, is, I mean, yeah. No credit. It's not the right answer for TTN. It's not the right answer for TTN. Even though TTN, as we said yesterday, is mm-hmm. an issue of reduced clearance of uh, fetal lung fluid, furosemide has not been shown to be helpful. And if you've practiced, I doubt anybody has used furosemide. Like it's it's very odd. Um, 
it's a very odd type of management anyway. Okay, choice C, infants with TTN are frequently commenced on antibiotics following delivery. The answer is yes to that. And the big problem is, uh, I forgot who wrote this editorial in pediatrics, but yeah, we never know if TTN mm -hmm. is relatively normal and transitory. How much of a respiratory distress is considered quote unquote normal? So yes, the answer to that is it's true. So I'm left with two choices. Choice D and E. Choice D, the management of TTN is supportive. Agreed. If a baby is uh, doing fine on room air and is just mildly tachypnic, we most likely the time we'll just watch them. So yes, that's true. And finally, choice E, which I haven't reread yet, is most likely the wrong answer. But there is a higher risk of TTN following vaginal delivery at 38 weeks than 40 weeks. And that actually um, I know to be false. Um, because obviously you've said it yesterday, right? I mean, as we go down in gestational age, um, the uh, risks of TTN increase. Now, where this sensor choice is kind of tricky is that there's data showing that for meconium aspiration, mm. you may want to deliver a bit earlier. Early. Like the, the, the mothers who had been delivered earlier had less meconium aspiration syndrome in their babies. And that's where you can get sort of tripped up by jumping between TTN and meconium aspiration. But in TTN, earlier is no better. So you want to be delivered a bit later. So that's choice E. That's right. That's correct. You walked it out. Good for you. I there thought this was a tough question. <laughs> I thought people could get, could get tripped up um, on a lot of different things. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the management of TTN. So administration of antenatal steroids. So as you mentioned, antenatal steroids um, uh, what they do is they actually enhance, so back to our uh, clearance of fetal lung fluid, they enhance fluid absorption from the alveoli because um, they increase the um, ENAC expression. So the epithelial sodium channels, um, it, it increases the both the expression and the activity. And so it does uh, over time um, help with the fetal lung clearance, um, therefore um, reducing rates of TTN when steroids were administered. Um, and this, the studies were really um, done in women who are about 37 weeks with planned C-sections. Since we know that cesarean section without labor is a risk for TTN, um, mm -hmm. that was the target population. Um, and so what they found was really short-term benefits, no significant um, benefits uh, like to discharge or, or some of the other things they were looking for. And so um, we're not routinely giving, you know, steroids um, to, to prevent TTN. Um, and that's why, even though they had less TTN, um, it didn't change really any of the major hospitalization uh, outcomes they were looking for. Um, so like you said, um, there have been a number of studies um, on furosemide in neonates with TTN and found that administration, um, either oral or IV, had no impact on the duration of symptoms or hospitalizations. So we don't use that. And then infants with TTN are frequently commenced on antibiotics following delivery. Unfortunately, this is true, just like you said, um, that because the clinical picture is so nonspecific and the differential diagnosis is so broad, um, it, it does include sepsis. And so it's not uncommon um, for babies, especially term infants with respiratory distress, to undergo um, 
a sepsis workup. Yeah, sepsis or pneumonia. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, the management of TTN is supportive. So, yep, if we answer all of the other <laughs> answers and we don't give anything for it, then, then what we do is is, is supportive. And then um, this last uh, answer. So it is false that there is a higher risk of TTN following vaginal delivery at 30 weeks than at 40 weeks. So let's talk about that a little bit. So the, the major risk factors for TTN um, are delivery without labor um, because the labor hormones help with the fetal lung clearance um, and labor itself, the mechanical forces associated with labor help with fetal lung clearance, fetal lung fluid clearance. Um, mm-hmm. And then lower gestational age is is still a risk factor for TTN. So that's why this answer is so confusing. So um, this mostly comes from a study where um, infants with TTN um, born at 37 weeks of gestation or later um, were evaluated. So what they found was that um, babies – if they were delivered following labor, so they went had a vaginal delivery and they had labored, there was no difference in TTN based on gestational age um, between 37 and 42 weeks. So that that doesn't really speak about like the true late preterm. Um, but this did not hold true for those who were delivered without having labored. So for those um, babies who were delivered without labor or by C-section, each week below 41 weeks gestation was associated with a stepwise increased risk of TTN. So if they had said there's a higher risk of TTN following cesarean delivery at 30 weeks than at 40 weeks, um, that, that would be a true statement. Um, but because this is talking about vaginal delivery in the 38 to 40 weeks, uh, there's no difference. Man. <laughs> I know. I got that question wrong. So yeah, you got it right. Good for you. <laughs> but I lucked out because it was the last choice and I sort of had to rub out the other three, the other four. Anyway. All right, Daphne, let's go. I'm, I'm next. Okay. Yep. Next question. Um, yeah, this is not so such an easy one either. Mm-hmm. Question 70. A male infant is born at 26 weeks of gestation and is now 44 weeks post-menstrual age. He has developed severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia and requires respiratory support with ventilatory settings of PIP of 28 centimeters of water, a PEEP of plus 8, and a respiratory rate of 40 breaths per minute with an FiO2 requirement of 60%. A recent echocardiography shows moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension. So you have a baby with BPD who has pulmonary hypertension. Which of the following statements about the pathophysiology of pulmonary hypertension in BPD is false? Which of the following statements about the pathophysiology of pulmonary hypertension in BPD is false? Choice A, disrupted vascular growth results in decreased vessel density of microcapillaries. Choice B, the increased pulmonary vascular resistance and altered vascular reactivity results in structural remodeling of the vessels. Choice C, there is an increased cross-sectional area for blood flow. Choice D, the vessels show structural remodeling with intimal hyperplasia. There's actually a typo there. Uh, mm-hmm. It says initial hyperplasia, but it's intimal hyperplasia. 
Choice E, the vessels show structural remodeling with muscularization of small pulmonary arteries. Oh. <laughs> There's a lot, lot to unpack here. <laughs> but yeah, when I think I'm about to do it. BPD, especially pulmonary hypertension, I, I think of what are the things that will reduce blood flow, I guess, is how I think about it to, to answer this question. So A, disrupted vascular growth results in decreased vessel density of, of microcapillaries. That's almost like the definition of, of, of what's, what's happening um, in terms of a vascular arrest of vascular development um, in, in BPD. So that's true. So it's not the correct answer to this question. The increased pulmonary vascular resistance and altered vascular reactivity results in structural remodeling of vessels. That's pretty a nonspecific answer. So I'm going to hold on to that one, but I think mm -hmm. yes. There is an increased cross-sectional area for blood flow. So I know this is wrong because when we think about VQ mismatch and when we think about um, pulmonary hypertension and BPD, we want whatever improves blood flow. So if I had an increased cross-sectional area for blood flow, that would, that would be a better thing. And so I'm going to say that this is uh, false. There is not an increased cross-sectional area for blood flow. But let me look at the other answers. The vessel shows structural remodeling with initial hyperplasia. Yes, um, they do. It makes them have um, less, uh, how do you say, agility to, to manage uh, cl mm -hmm. the clinical change in clinical scenario. Um, and E, the vessel shows structural remodeling with muscularization of small pulmonary arteries. That's also true. So what I think about is that the vessels are thickened, they're hyperplastic, they um, are less um, able to react to the, the clinical scenario. So I guess for this answer, C, which is false, C, there's increased cross-sectional area for blood flow, which there is not. Good job. Very nice. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, yes. So I thought this the, was a hard question. It's it very was confusing. hard. It's it. You can easily get confused. The statements are right. quite long, and and they're similar. And they're similar. And let's be honest. If you have to deal with this the day of the test, like you're not as cool, calm, and collected as right. you are at home reviewing. So it's better to get a sense of what is this question asking and try to try to learn as much as possible ahead of time. The question really is why do babies with DP BPD develop pulmonary hypertension? Mm -hmm. And the answer, the short answer is that it's multifactorial. So um, obviously there's a component of hypoxic vasoconstriction mm -hmm. that then leads to impaired blood flow. And that's, that's one aspect. But the other aspect obviously starts off from a disrupted vascular growth, right? So we have a decreased vessel density throughout the pulmonary microcapillary network because you're born uh, prematurely. And then because you have decreased vessel density, the overall cross-sectional area for blood flow is reduced. And so what that means is that if you added up all the different radii of all the different mm -hmm. uh, vessel, that would be smaller than if you were a full-term baby. Um, and so that, that's what it means, decreased cross-sectional area for, for blood flow. So, so obviously, um, what's interesting in this answer 
is that statement A and C are opposed. When mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So statement A was saying disrupted vascular growth results in decreased ventral sure. density of the microcapillaries. So then if that's true, then there's automatically a decrease in the cross-sectional area mm-hmm. available for blood flow. And choice C says there is an increased cross-sectional. So right away, those two statements are in opposition and you almost have to decide which one which is one? right, which one is right. wrong. And like you said, the idea of disrupted vascular growth secondary to prematurity is something we're very familiar with. So I think that alone could have made the the the, the answer a bit easier. Mm-hmm. This idea of decreased cross-sectional area for blood flow then increases pulmonary vascular resistance. And that constant increase in pulmonary vascular resistance alters the, rea- the vasoreactivity of the pulmonary beds. And that vasoreactivity is even more affected by chronic hypoxia Mm -hmm. and that lack of vasoreactivity leads to structural remodeling with the intimal hyperplasia. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so then because the vessels don't really have an ability to to adjust uh, because they're exposed to increased resistance, chronic hypoxia, that just leads to thickening of the vessel and in turn just pulmonary hypertension. So yeah, that was that was not so straightforward. No, not at all. (laughs) Um okay. Uh question 83, which is actually uh, a review from earlier in the week uh for you. Hopefully hopefully uh, this I'll lob this one to you. We'll see. Um an obstetrical never assume An obstetrical nurse contacts the neonatology fellow to evaluate an infant with respiratory distress and cyanosis. During her observation, the fellow notes that the infant's cyanosis improves with crying. All of the following statements are true about this infant's condition except A. The majority of cases are bilateral. B. This diagnosis can have a bony or a membranous component. C. This diagnosis is confirmed with CT or computed tomography. D, this diagnosis is more common in females. E, this diagnosis may occur in isolation or as part of a syndrome. So, okay, Daphna. So we're looking for which uh, statement is not really true. And they're describing the typical case of coanal atresia, Mm -hmm. for which my mnemonic is going to be very (laughs) helpful, right? Mm -hmm. So for those who uh, have not adopted my amazing mnemonic, it's cat fur. C-A-T, coenol atresia. Fur is mostly found in female. Most of the time is unilateral. And when unilateral, most likely involves the right side. So let's see. Which of the following statements are true, except? All of the following statements are true, except. Mm -hmm. So the majority of cases are bilateral. Well, that's it right there. (laughs) The um, Done. You got it. So, I, I mean, I would just check this off. But just for the sake of argument, mm-hmm. diagnosis can have a bony or membranous component. Yes. Confirmed with CT. Yes. The diagnosis is more common in females. That's the F of fur. Yes. And the diagnosis may occur in isolation or as part of a syndrome. That is true. 50% mm-hmm. as part of a syndrome, if you guys remember correctly from the other episode. Bam. Just nailed it. Done. <laughs> That's right. Have so... a good week, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But... 
just just to give you your full review, uh, the majority of cases of coanal atresia are uh, unilateral. Uh, there was, a, if you weren't sure about the diagnosis, there was a key, and I, I read it to you, <laughs> but I won't be reading it to you on the test. But um, So the infant cyanosis improves with crying. So um, coanal atresia is a congenital obstruction of the posterior um, nasopharynx and is the most common cause of nasal obstruction. So it's a failure of the buccal-nasal membrane to rupture between the fifth and sixth weeks of development. Um, and obstruction can be bony or membranous or both. And so if babies can't get enough air in through the nose, but they're able to get air in through the mouth, say with during crying, um, it helps um, with the cyanosis and, and the symptoms. Um, most cases are sporadic. Um, however, the majority of patients with coanal atresia do have associated malformations. Um, and we said 50% um, but there are a number of, of associations. So the one we reviewed earlier in the week was the associated syndrome of charge syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, C for coloboma of coloboma. the eye, H for heart defects, um, A is atresia of the coena, coenal atresia. The R stands for um, retardation of growth and or development. The G is uh, kind of GU abnormalities, um, genital or urinary. Um, and E is for ear abnormalities, and there's um, frequently um, hearing loss or deafness. Um, but charge syndrome is not the only association. So it can also be seen in um, Cruzon syndrome, uh, Pfeiffer syndrome, and Treacher-Collins. And just like you said, um, females are more often affected. Um, it is most common uh, to be unilateral. It's more common on the right side. Um, and if it doesn't present with respiratory distress at birth, um, then it, it frequently becomes a problem with feeding or when something else like a pacifier is put into the uh, baby's, baby's mouth. Obviously, if you have bilateral coenal atresia, um, then uh, babies can have a severe respiratory distress requiring intubation. Um, diagnosis is really by being unable to, to pass a, a suction catheter through the nose, and then we can confirm it with CT. I think that's it. We've made it to the end of the week. That was fun, Daphna. All right, Daphna, that was fun. <laughs> it sure was. Thanks, everybody. See you on Sunday. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.